0: Welcome to Be On The Shelf. I'm Scott Curry with Chef's Guest. We gather to discuss the trends in marketing, retail and production and food and beverage that are shaping the industry. Today, we are once again joined by Pamela Deese, partner at Errant Fox in Washington, D.C. Pam's practice focuses on advertising and intellectual property licensing. If you're just tuning in, this is the second episode of a three-part series with Pam in which we discuss the ins and outs of advertising claims. In last week's episode, we discussed the different types of ad claims, who makes them, and what marketers need to know before making them. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, we recommend going back and giving a listen. Today's episode will be discussing some of the possible ramifications brands can encounter when making unsubstantiated ad claims, as well as how social media fits into laws and regulations regarding advertising. Pam, once again, thank you for joining us. Uh, Let's just hop right into it. At the end of the last episode, you gave us a taste of how Financially damaging, some of these cases can be if you are making advertising claims that are not substantiated. Uh, so I, I was just curious, how damaging can it really be? What are, what are we talking about here? I, I suspect that it can vary depending on the size of the company, but we're not referring to a fifty dollars stoplight ticket here, right?
1: That's correct, and and so there's different and varying ways to look at the cost or 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 in some cases damages. So, Right out of the box, if you make a claim that's not supported or questionable, you may hear or uh, by way of letter from a competitor who says, um, Mr. Curry, you know, please substantiate the claim you made, provide us with that substantiation. That's a competitor asking you for that. So if you don't have the substantiation, you're already in a bind because you've got to answer that letter, probably hire a lawyer to do it if you're you know, savvy, and, and you may have to generate some substantiation. So there's a cost right there. Um, It goes all the way from that very seemingly all I got was a letter, but I didn't have substantiation, to someone sues me. And even if I'm a startup, they may not be suing you or get damages, but they could ask the court for what's known as equitable relief. They ask the court to enjoin you, stop you from making an advertising claim. Well, that's where I said that is um, uh, difficult that impacts the goodwill you've tried to create. And if you're a startup and right out of the box, you have to go to court, try to defend what you're doing or not, you could get a default judgment and an injunction stopping the claims you're making, that comes at a cost. It can go all the way up to two big companies litigating, either having a, a, a resolution that they're seeking at the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau, which is a voluntary thing we can talk about, or in court. And these cases can be in costs, forget judgments, millions of dollars to just litigate these claims. That's a lot of money. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned, there's typically experts involved. There are depositions involved. There may be multiple depositions, which is where we ask questions of witnesses. They're time consuming. And then when all is said and done, the resolution may be, The parties have to settle or um, the court may award damages. And then the third particularly costly area is if um, you have a class action brought and there are class action lawyers that are in the waters watching decisions that the Federal Trade Commission may render against an advertiser. Um, The Federal Trade Commission may seek damages or there may be a penalty of a million or two million dollars for claims that you made. But then the class action lawyers bring suit and anyone who reads the newspaper or listens to the news knows the class action lawsuits net a lot of money in class action, both the fees and the award to consumers. So wildly expensive. So you go from kind of not so expensive to very expensive.
0: Certainly not something any any brand, regardless of size, uh, should be taking lightly and, and I, I think you know, a, a large company is not going to have pity for a startup. I, I mean, they, they're, they're in business to be in business. Uh, and, and the, you know, and, and is it safe to say that there's probably multiple exposures here? I mean, I'm trying to think here of, of all that is involved in an advertising occurring. You have ad agencies, PR firms, you have obviously the brand itself, uh, you have the mm-hmm. media company? Are they are, are, is there exposure all the way through here? because if if a magazine or a billboard company uh, you know provides the space for this ad, are they at risk to? It? I mean, this if you're gonna sue, you sue them all. I mean it, how, how, how wide does this exposure go
1: So that's an excellent question because the exposure is wide, and that's one of the reasons why media companies, often ask an advertiser to produce substantiation when they're placing an ad. So for example, the networks, the big uh, television networks have routinely had um, uh, aspects of their review in their legal departments where they'll look at the substantiation, ask an advertiser for the substantiation. As an advertiser, you can go to a network and challenge an ad that somebody placed and say they didn't have substantiation. And if you sue, you could sue the ad agency that created it if they made the claims, you know, without doing due diligence. Um, You can sue a network, you could sue multiple layers here of people that get in trouble. So that the part of the incentive is everybody has an interest in being sure that you've got substantiation. The problem is right now we've got the wild west of, you know, anybody can put anything up in social media. And so right. the rules still apply in a nutshell. And I know we're going to get to that at another another part here, but just forward thinking, the rules, the rules, they apply to all advertisers. They apply to whatever medium the advertiser is using.
0: So let's go there. Let's go into social media. So we've got to put on our, maybe have a machete here to hack our way through this one. I, I, I would imagine that this world was, while still obviously complex, a little less complex 10, 15 years ago. Um, When you look at social media, you have a lot of challenges. Number one is uh, there is, I would say, content premium put on uh, brevity, right? Um, You know, you want to be, you you only have a moment to get their attention. Uh, You don't want to put a post up that is going to have You know, it's 700 word disclaimer. Um, So there's that challenge. You have the challenge of it being the Wild West in itself as well, that you can't control everything that is going to be said about your brand. So if you put an advertisement out there and the comment sections are open and someone comments on there, this is the best cupcake ever in the world and is way better than that one. Uh, I want to have a discussion around that, about that that as well. And then I think, and th- this is just my own personal, personal view here, and not meant to come across as, as disparaging, but the majority of folks that are managing social media are going to be on the younger side. And that's not to say on the less smart side, but it is to say on the less experienced side. You know, they, they might not have been in the executive boardrooms where where that letter is received, uh, you know, or at a company they were at prior where they they, they went through this. So uh, I think, you know, younger folks uh, are typically a little bit more casual in how they converse. And, uh, and, and again, they just simply won't have the experience if like all of us have been 24 years old at some time. And the only thing we're certain of is that we thought we knew everything and we didn't. Uh, we just didn't have the experience. So uh, setting that all up, how how do these standards change or not change? Or how do you navigate this wor- the world of social media that that's the Wild West? So feel free to pick up wherever you'd like with discussing sh- social media and, and what brands should be thinking about.
1: Well, Scott, thank you for that question. And you hit on like three separate important areas. You talked about disclaimers, <laughs> you talked about testimonials and consumer kind of statements, and you talked about managing social media and the fact that it's often left in the hands of younger uh, members of a uh, of an entity. Let, let me start there. Um, let's start with the fact that managing social media is a hugely important role in any company, and we tell and advise clients that leaving that in the unsupervised hands of people who are not in the uh, boardroom, not part of the team of the marketing legal and technical is an error. When you think social media, that doesn't just mean people having modest conversations that aren't relevant to the company's brand with other consumers it has a huge impact potentially on the company. So how you have that dialogue is critical. The things you say are binding on the company. So there needs to be appropriate um, education of those folks, whoever the employees are, um, an understanding of the brand, understanding of the rules that apply, um, that is not something that social media management is not and never should be delegated to people that are not part of a bigger conversation within the company. You wouldn't do that with your advertising you're putting on the network or on print advertising. <clears throat> the same can has to be part of the social media team. That's number one. <clears throat> so then what happens if you're going to put something up on social media? What isn't what is a claim? You know, if you've got influencers involved, which Everyone wants to be an influencer and everyone wants to use influencers, <laughs> but influencers are not exempt from the rules of advertising, nor are advertisers who use influencers exempt from the rules. So there's a whole section of the Federal Trade Commission guides related to advertising on expert endorsements and testimonials, and the FTC has also put out guidance regarding influencers and Further to that, the FTC, understanding that this is not something well understood by the younger influencer market, has been writing letters to influencers explaining that what they're doing is subject to the law and educating them before they come back and bring an action against them, basically. So this is a very uh, uh, important area, I would say, you know, younger people involved in advertising may think it's evolving. The law is the law. It applies to you. And you need to understand what those rules are. And we can certainly go into more detail there. Um, you also talked about disclaimers, as I mentioned, but we, we can come back to that if you'd like to, because that's another important area.
0: Yeah, w- let's, let's hold on to disclaimer and, and get into these one-click rules away and stuff like that.
1: You know, I, I
0: think there's another challenge pres- presented by social media and in the internet as well. You know, you have your own website which you can change, right? You you have you can change over time. But one of the best or worst things about social media—that's uh, a can of worms, isn't it—is uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep Pandora's box closed a little bit here. But I think one of the best or worst things is, is that there's a history there. And I could see a company, let's take a hotel ex- company, for example. You have a, a small hotel in, in the metro DC area, and you said, rated the number one hotel or number one budget hotel in uh, you know Northern Virginia. That may be true at the moment, right? You may be able to point to something that says, yeah, if you look at our ratings on, on Google Travel or Travelocity or something like that, or Yelp you had 4.9 stars, and that was the best in in that category at that time. That person puts up that post, life goes on, maybe the hotel's quality and service declines. Four years later, their star rating is 3.5, and they are anything but the best one in Northern Virginia. Yet, I, as a consumer... Might, might Google best hotels in, in Northern Virginia, and you know I'm scanning through my feed and, and looking for things, and I come across that. How on earth does a brand police something like that? Or can they? Or do they, you know?
1: Right. So policing is one question. Making the claim is another. Let's start with the claim itself. So if you're going to say you've got a rating of some sort, and it's a First of all, it has to be a real rating. It can't be one that you make up yourself. You can't self-certify a rating or self-certify an award. And there are companies that are trying to do that. Can't do that. Um, and if you have a rating, you should have a disclosure. This gets back to the disclaimer that indicates what that rating is based on. You know, is it based on, you know, something, some survey data you collected? Is it some third party? So that consumers understand where that rating comes from. Three, you have to make sure that it's current. So if you lose that status, if the rating was given four years ago um, and it's not relevant anymore, you can't keep making that statement about your, um, your brand or your product. But then it gets to the next question, which is policing. And that is of course um, you know, a challenging issue but it's your responsibility as a brand owner if you're making those statements about your products. If someone else is making the statement and you don't have knowledge of it, that's a different story. That's almost impossible to enforce. Query why someone third party would be making those kinds of statements about your product or brand and you don't know about it. But um, let's assume the brand owner does know. You are responsible for for the current claim um, and the current nature of the claims that you make.
0: Okay, so so let, let's just go there a little bit, because I think there's a scenario that is, is, is actually probably quite likely. So let's say on Amazon, I'm, I'm a food and beverage brand. I'm selling uh, herbal tea, and someone makes a puts a review on there and says, this is the best tasting tea I've ever had. It's amazing. It's so much better than X, Y, and Z. And this is the number one review on there, right? If for whatever reason, it's pushed up at the top. And let's say they just, I won't make them up the statement, but you get the idea. They're saying just these incredible, amazing things. And they maybe even say this team makes me feel better and more healthy and all that type of stuff. What if I reply to that? What if I say, thank you very much. We We agree. Am I now into an area that, that, that could get me in trouble because clearly I've seen it as a brand. Clearly there's these ad claims. Obviously there could be something nefarious there too. I might've had my best friend make that statement on there. Uh, how, the, how, how, how do I know that I'm protected as a brand when he said, it's almost impossible to police yet. I don't know. I think a good lawyer could maybe be say, Hey, you, you knew this, or let's look at who this a- actual Amazon reviewer is how do you how do you boy, it's just it's just almost I don't, I don't want to say scared or frightening because I know that's never your intent, but it just gets very, very very convoluted and complicated and worrisome.
1: Well, you've raised a great question and you've you've touched on multiple scenarios so one is if you're on a third party platform, so your product is being sold someplace. Um, and people are reviewing it, and that may be Yelp, that may be Google reviews, it may be, you know, um, uh, Amazon reviews. If you don't, if you don't have the opportunity to curate those, those reviews, or, or you don't have the ability to comment, so you could, like, notify Amazon, hey, that's not a, that's not a real accurate review, or they're, you know, we, you can't say that, you know, that, and you don't do that, you let that stand. Like somebody says, oh my gosh, I drank this product and it cured my cancer. And you know, that's not true. And you don't know anything about that. Um, That's a potential problem. Though less, I mean, less likely to be a problem than if it's on your page, you know, lots of brands have um, websites where consumers can comment and talk, right? And so consumers are giving star ratings on your website. Well, a consumer, the rules say, an advertiser rather, cannot use the words of someone else, even a consumer, if they could not substantiate the claim themselves. So you can't let a claim stand that says something that you couldn't say yourself. Believe me, lots of advertisers like to do that because they feel like, well, I didn't say it. But a third party on your, where you control the dialogue, the narrative, the speech, the marketing can't allow, an advertiser can't allow someone else to say something about the product that they themselves couldn't say. Mm. So that's where influencers come in. And that's where, you know, an influencer will, you you may give them product to try. They may be extolling the virtues of this on their page themselves, right? That's where it gets tricky. Um, one, sometimes consumers don't know that you've paid the influencer, given them free product. There's all these disclosures around that. And then the influencer goes way off script in terms of what you've told them they can say about the product and starts talking about, you know, perceived virtues that are ridiculous. You know, that's not what the product does. Um, so that would have to stop. You'd have to put a kibosh on that. Now,
0: Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, okay, we won't get into another one yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as and, and you said, this, this, there's some sharks out in the water, and you know, I, I emphasize that social media doesn't go away. It's not an ad that runs in a magazine and you do a one time run, and you know, maybe no one saw it. Um, the stuff is out there, it's searchable, it's findable. So you need to educate your own teams uh, all the way down, all the way down to uh, you know your social media coordinator has to understand this world, uh, and then you have to understand that that things do not go away in on, on the internet, uh, and that it it is even I would say easier to make a mistake. Uh, for some reason, there's something different for me if it, if there's a print ad that says best hotel in San Diego versus a social media post that says you know, this Memorial day, weekend, come to the best hotel in San Diego. It feels differently to me. However, under the law is not different in that you need to have the same level of caution for a print ad that feels a w- certain way in a social media post that just, it just feels a certain way. Uh, to our point in the earlier one, ignorance is not a excuse. And I think we've all been pulled over by a police officer that says, "You know, you're, you're, Mr. Curry, you're going 70 miles per hour, and you go oh, I didn't feel that way. Uh, it doesn't matter how you feel. It's, it's yeah, right. Did you or did you not? That is how the law is interpreted, right?
1: Well, and Scott, to your point on the, you know, the social media stuff, you know, there's there's different categories, but it also goes to things that sometimes people don't think of as marketing materials or they think of them as marketing materials, but they don't think that they'd be subject to a challenge. So for example, if you're um, a brick and mortar store, you may have, um, you know, some materials that you hand out to potential customers in the store. And you may say something about your product or competitor product on those materials, and they may be very informal, you know, like a tear sheet or something like that. Those have been found to be advertising. So, you know, mm-hmm. you really have to be thinking if I'm a brand or I have a claim I'm going to make as an owner of a product that I'm trying to sell, it doesn't matter where I put that claim, <laughs> I have to have the substantiation to make it. So I can't think that there's some hierarchy. Well, if I put it over here, I can say crazy things. But if I put it, you know, on television, no, I can't. No, the same rules apply. It doesn't matter what you you can say it in, et cetera.
0: So a listener may be wondering now, rules, what are these rules and who's coming up with these rules? And and they're they're not, they're not met. There's, they're not magically created. And I know there's, I'm sure there's precedent, uh, but one is the, uh, one one body if you will is the national advertising division of the better business bureau so tell us a little bit about what they are why we should be aware and what their role is in advertising
1: right so they're there let's start um better business bureau actually is um, a, a part of what's called the national advertising division of the better business bureau the NAD and it's actually better business Bureau as you know as an organization companies can belong to it and if advertisers that are members have a dispute with one another about a claim and that whether the substantiation exists or doesn't, they can file uh, a, a complaint not as formal as with a court at the National advertising division and ask um, a competitor to participate in a review of their advertising. Um, by the NAD, and so there is a whole. There's a group at the National Advertising Division of lawyers specializing in advertising, and so it, they hear both sides of the dispute, and then they, you know, render an opinion. Um, but it's voluntary, so companies don't have to do this. Though it's sort of foolish not to, because if you either refuse to participate or refuse to acknowledge the decision of the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau, they can refer that refusal to the Federal Trade Commission who can then in their discretion, file a complaint against the advertiser who didn't want to follow the guidance of the National Advertising Division. Um, So there are implications for not really participating fully. But there are, to your first question, there are various regulatory bodies and watchdogs that look at advertising. It starts with the Federal Trade Commission, essentially, National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau, which also has a group called the Children's Advertising Review Unit, which focuses solely on advertising directed at children, the state regulatory agencies So by the way, yeah. the Children's Advertising Review Unit does have... Um, you know, looks at things like uh, cereal commercials and things that would be food products that would be directed to kids and kind of how that's how those claims are made. So that's an interesting one for food and beverage people. Any food or beverage where there'd be advertising claims that a child might hear would be relevant to that group. There are state, every state has regulatory agencies that look at advertising within the state. You had mentioned we talked about networks before they do reviews, magazines, and then advertisers can litigate in court against one another and then class actions. So there's multiple things. And then, sorry, forgot to mention that, you know, various agencies that would approve labeling, you know, for alcoholic products or cosmetic products or um fungicides, rodenticides any of those things may have another agency of the federal government that has an interest in what is going on that label and could also challenge what you're saying or the rules you're not following. So it is a complex area.
0: It sounds very complex. I mean, overlapping agencies. Uh, it is a, let's call it a dangerous blend of government and business going on. Uh, I. I uh, I say that as tongue in cheek about our just you know <laughs> thoughts about <laughs> the murkiness of of what can occur in those areas. And I- am I right in that if you go go do go to court, which I'm not sure if you you litigate in, in in court. If I'm standing there, are the judges pointing back to this? Because last I checked, there isn't anything in the Constitution about ad claims. Sounds like we might need it, but <laughs> a few other few other challenges first uh, for the country. But are they actually pointing to, you know, decision in 2017 between uh, this and that? Is, is that what they're relying on? And, and are there hundreds, thousands of these decisions to point to over the, I don't know, decades? I'm just curious yeah, it, how how to unpack a little bit the complexity and the murkiness of the of how there are actually results at the end like you know in ultimately court someone wins or loses you know or the some 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 unless you split split the difference but how does it get unpacked at the actual decision level by prior decisions.
1: Sure. So you're talking about precedent, but let's start with what law applies. You mentioned the Constitution. The, these laws, I mean, they have never been deemed to be unconstitutional. Um, the Lanham Act is the law that applies in court, uh, federal court claims involving false advertising or endorsements. And so- So, so could you just say the name of that again? Maybe It's spell called it? the Lanham Act, L-A-N-H-A-M Act. It's been around for quite a while. It's in our united states code um there's a section it's section 1125a of the lanham act and it prohibits false representation regarding origin sponsorship endorsement or association of goods or services with another and false or misleading descriptions of fact or misleading representation of fact and talks commercial advertising promotion misrepresents the nature character quality or geographic origin of the advertiser or another person's goods, services or commercial activities. That's the law that applies if you're going to court in federal court. You may have state laws that are similar um, or additive to that. And then if you're at the Federal Trade Commission, there's the FTC Act, which is protective of consumers, it prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices. So we don't have the ability as advertisers to go to the FTC and litigate a claim, but the Federal Trade Commission will take referrals and basically independently reviews activities that involve unfair or deceptive acts or practices, all with an intention of protecting people who may be vulnerable, right? So if some advertiser makes claims about their product, weight loss, um, financial you know financing, um, anything where people um, would would rely on those claims and they're false, the FTC will could step in and say you're in violation of the FTC Act. On the Lanham Act side, that gives individuals a what's called private right of action to go to court and, and allege that a competitor made, false or deceptive claims about their product. And in the interest of protecting consumers, we allow parties to do that. Um, So, and in answer to the further question you had on precedent, which means that there are decisions by federal courts that guide federal courts moving forward. Yes, that is our legal system. The courts look to prior decisions in rendering decisions because they're trying to interpret the law. So they'll say, this is okay. This is not okay. This is what the law means. And we've decided that in XYZ case. Um, So that's how that works. What
0: about the First Amendment, Pam? Free speech. Just kidding. We're not going to go there.
1: (laughs) No, but that's true. You have, of course, you can say whatever you would like as long as you don't violate the law when you say it. If you make a false statement, you have no First Amendment right. I mean, you can make a false statement, but there implications for for doing that, particularly if you're trying to sell a product. And that's where all these laws, you know, there are thousands of laws in the United States, they all are are intertwined with constitutional rights and a balance of what, what freedoms we want to somewhat limit. Like, we don't want to tell people, yeah, you have a First Amendment right to say whatever you want, but there's more to that statement. So long as, right? You don't lie, you don't Lie about a person falsely and do damage. You don't lie about your product because those are harmful acts. Just like we have, you have a you know a right to drive your. You don't even have a right to drive your car. Actually, that's a right of the state of license. But you don't have the right to drive in a way that would hurt people. Um, so there's there's all kinds of limitations. That's why we have so many laws because because we have to regulate people's behavior. They're not really good at doing things unless there are some rules.
0: That that was actually beautifully stated, and you said it is a balance. I'm glad that you pointed out there is a law here, folks. This is not just opinions from, you know, said a better business bureau that you may agree or not agree or may be a member or not. There are laws. Pam, you recited the law. I suspect that you had that memorized. (laughs) Uh, You didn't need to read that one. Uh, (laughs) I do do have one one last question before we we close out this episode. the you mentioned that the NAD is a voluntary process so so why how should I participate that just a, uh, someone with a fraction of the knowledge of you that that was a little confusing for me there about uh, when and how something is voluntary in a uh, in these instances that otherwise are serious right you usually don't equate something serious with something voluntary so could you just talk about that a little bit more
1: Sure. Um, so the NAD, the Better Business Bureau, has set up this um, process for its members or other people to participate, you know, if one company's a member and another's not, participate in resolving disputes outside the courts in the advertising space. So that's why it's voluntary. You can be a member of the Better Business Bureau and take advantage of this national advertising t- division to ask them to help you resolve a dispute over a competitor's advertising claim. So if you receive um, a letter from the National Advertising Division that a competitors filed a complaint, you can choose to participate in the process or not. I would say 99.9% of companies agree to do it because it's less expensive than going to court. Um, it's easier to kind of educate you know, the, the very, um, the the people at the National Advertising Division are all experienced advertising uh, reviewers. So most companies feel like they they understand how the law works, and so they're uh, more comfortable possibly going in and trying to get a resolution and and explain why they made this claim that they did, why they thought their advertising was reasonable. Further, the NAD doesn't have the ability to, to... issue some sort of monetary punishment, all they can say is, we recommend that the advertiser make the following change in their advertising. Like you can't make that claim anymore until you have substantiation or something along those lines. So the, the process nets a result that many companies feel is better than going into court and um, you know much less punitive, if you will, not less necessarily expensive. But it that's why. Volunteer. You don't have to participate, but again, if you don't, or you don't abide by the decision of the National Advertising Division, you can face um, a problem with the Federal Trade Commission. So, awesome.
0: well, Thank you for, for the entire episode unpacking all this. I think, I think my takeaway is it's complex, obviously, very complex. I think that, uh, Pam, you're doing a wonderful job of summarizing but uh, it's safe to say we could, we could really go down some lengthy rabbit holes of, 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 of all the different variations that could be out there. So it's incredibly complex. I think uh, any company that is considering advertising claims or has received that letter or is just curious uh, that you are, would be well served uh, to speak with, with someone like Pam and she's with Eric Fox. been around since 1942 and i'll I'll go ahead and read the website here it's a-r-e-n-t fox uh, like the cute fuzzy animal uh, errantfox.com and if you have any questions i'm sure pam and i assume you'd be you'd be happy to to speak with anyone and take a phone call as uh you know there's got to be questions that people have and and, would want to reach out on this because with the with the extra layer of social media in there it just The exposure i feel that the risk and exposure uh over time just builds up for a brand uh you don't know what a social media coordinator said didn't say three years ago uh not every post is getting approved at the executive level uh and i won't i would never in my Life, even try to unpack, you know, NAD and all those rulings, and, and you need to be speaking with people that do know and understand these things. And if you think you're going to Google your way to answers on these, then I would suggest that you uh, <laughs> hire hire a good lawyer first. Uh, we have one episode remaining. We're going to uh, put some of this this knowledge into practical use. We're going to talk a little bit about some examples that that have been out there, some instances, some of which these real world ones, we might might have remembered reading about at one time or another. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about awards and certifications as well and the legitimacy around those as well. So uh, Pam, thank you again. And uh, if you're listening, thank you very much. We hope you're finding this informative and we have a lot more to go. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Shelf, presented by Chef's Best. Please join us next week for the third and final episode of our series with Pamela Deese. To be notified when the next episode is live, please subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more details about all our episodes from inside the ever-changing food and beverage industry, visit chefsbest.com.